Good evening, everyone. Uh, let me start with a, a question, and thank you, Sally, for leading us. But let me start with a question, because uh, questions take us on a journey of discovering. Uh, what is the gateway to happiness? Okay, have a think about that for a moment. What is the gateway to happiness? Uh, three and a half years ago, I, I shared this formula for happiness that came out of a TV series that was fronted by Dave Gorman, a, a London-based stand-up comedian, that L plus H plus W equals happiness. Now, can anyone take a guess what those three letters stand for? Or maybe you can remember if you were here three and a half years ago, but L plus uh, H plus W, what do those three letters stand for? Yeah, love plus health plus wealth equals happiness. It's not bad. In fact, I reckon it probably rings true for many people within our society. But what happens whenever your health deteriorates or a relationship breaks down or the current recession tightens its grip on your finances? Does that mean that unhappiness is a foregone conclusion. A century ago, someone else suggested this alternative uh, equation. Someone to love, plus something to do, plus something to look forward to, equals happiness. Love, plus purpose, plus hope. Is that better than Dave Gorman's? Or just different? What is the gateway to happiness? A number of years ago, the Happiness Project was launched. I don't, I don't know if any of you know it. Is there a wee bit of a ringing, Simon? Can people hear a wee bit of a ringing? Right, if we can turn that ringing, then great, done. The Happiness Project was launched, and it became a bit of a household name. I don't know how many people saw the TV program uh, that ran for a number of weeks. I think it was ran for eight weeks where five million people apparently tuned in and watched three volunteers go through the happiness program. How many people saw that? It was quite a number of years ago. No, nobody. By Dr. Robert Holden. Well, 2009, Oprah Winfrey picked this up and ran quite a number of programs all about this. And it gained huge popularity. And the key themes of this particular book, Be Happy, which the subtitle is Release the Power of Happiness in You. The key themes of that book were these. The gift of happiness, the happy self, choosing your life, joy unlimited, the heart of happiness, everyday abundance, love and happiness, and then happiness now. And the strap line for this particular eight-week course, which is still running, and there's a course coming up in London, but the strap line for this particular course reads like this. Are you happy? Are your relationships flourishing? Do you love your work? Would you like to be happier? Take the Be Happy course. And some of you are probably thinking, where do I sign up? But whatever you, whatever you think of these kind of courses, whatever you think of these kind of books, and I'm not knocking them, please. I'm, I'm not knocking them. But whatever you think of these kind of things, the reality is 
that if you were to ask most people today, what is it you long for? What is it you hope for? What is it you pray for, for yourself and for your family? I reckon the vast majority of people would say, for health and for happiness. For health and for happiness. But what is the gateway to happiness? Well, I want you to just hold that thought for a moment because I'm sure some of you think, now hang on a minute, are we not continuing the deep cries to deep series in the Psalms? Well, the answer is yes, we are. And I'm going to make the connection between Psalm 32 and the way I've started tonight in a moment. If you are visiting or you haven't been here for a while, this, this is our third week uh, of this new series, Exploring the Practice of Praying the Psalms. And I know that many of you, because a number of you have told me that you are finding the discovery or the rediscovery of this ancient practice and this ancient discipline to be helpful, to be really beneficial. Some of you have said that it is kind of renewing or it's refreshing your personal prayer life. And that is so good to hear that kind of feedback. So please, can I encourage you, like if you do have feedback to send, if it's positive, great. And if it's negative as well, do feed feed that back. It's very helpful. But what we're finding is that the Psalms are an amazing resource. As Sally has already said, they are an incredible prayer book. And last Sunday evening, I suggested that there are two key ways to pray using the Psalms. Okay? For those who were here last week, can you remember the two key ways to pray using the Psalms? You can either pray with or from exactly to pray with the psalms and this is just kind of just filling in a bit for those those who weren't here last week to pray with a psalm is actually to take the words that you find there to adopt those words to own them and to express them as your prayer the psalms Come, give us these ways of articulating things that we maybe are struggling to put into words. I came across this quote, Ellen Davis put it like this, packaged, ready, ready to be put directly in our mouths. That's what she says about the Psalms. Using their words brings us into direct encounter. Through them, we find ourselves talking to the living God, sometimes in language we would never have imagined would come from our lips into God's ears. And so the beauty of praying with the Psalms, with these prayers, and there are 150 of them, but the beauty of praying with them is that they provide you words to pray. And so when you feel lost for words or you're struggling to express what's on your heart, what needs to be said, what needs to be prayed, the Psalms are there for us. So that you can pray words of frustration if that's how you feel. You can pray words of lament if that's where you're at. You can pray words of praise, words of thanksgiving. You can pray words of trust. You can pray words of comfort. You can pray words of confession. And the words are packaged, ready to be used. It's a brilliant thought. Martin Luther, someone quite different, put it like this. Hence it is that the Psalter is the book of all saints and everyone in whatever situation he may be finds in that situation psalms and words that fit his case. 
that suit him as if they were put there just for his sake so that he could not put it better himself or find or wish for anything better. So pray with the Psalms. And last week I I promised as, as I was introducing this that I would have a list available for as many people as wanted, a list of all the different types and genres of Psalms so that if you needed to pray a Psalm of praise, you would know where to turn. If you needed to pray a psalm of lament, you would know where to turn. So I have got those with me this evening as promised. And if you do want one and would find that helpful, then please ask me afterwards. But the other way to pray is from the psalms. And that is where you take a word or you take a phrase or you take a psalm and then you use that as a launch pad for your own prayer. So rather than just pray with it, you maybe take it and you pray from it. And it can lead you into a whole world of prayer. And the other suggestion in praying from a psalm that I mentioned last week is that to actually take a psalm and then write your own version of it. And I know a number of you have done that. Some of you are doing that. Some of you have sent them to me. And I hope at the end of this series to compile a whole uh, gathering of versions of psalms that have been written by the congregation here. So please do pick up on that as well. But the specific psalm that I want to look at this evening, and Sally has already mentioned this, is on page 560 of the Bibles in the pews. And it's Psalm 32, which is a prayer of confession. Although if you take one of these lists later, you'll actually notice that it's also described not only as a prayer of confession, but also as a psalm and a prayer of thanksgiving. It's one of those psalms that sort of fits into a number of categories. And the writer, if you have a look at your Bibles there, you'll notice that the writer is immediately identified as David. And many people, and and many people who would see themselves as careful readers of the Psalms, would believe that along with Psalm 51, which is a far more familiar Psalm of confession, this one, Psalm 32, was prayed by David following the whole Bathsheba-Uriah incident. That whenever David messed up, whenever he committed adultery, whenever he organized for the murder of Bathsheba's husband and all that spilled out of that, David not only prayed Psalm 51, but he also prayed Psalm 32. And so here is a psalm to pray with and from whenever you know you've messed up. Here is a psalm to pray whenever you know you've got it wrong. Whenever you recognize your need to come before God in confession and repentance, here is an amazing prayer to use. 32 is recognized as an incredibly important psalm. Some of you will know that Paul quotes it. In fact, he quotes the first two verses of Psalm 32 word for word in Romans chapter 4 as he speaks about justification by faith. Really important psalm. And Augustine, one of the early church fathers, felt that this psalm was so important that he had it engraved on the walls of his bedroom. Now I'm not uh, suggesting that you go home and get out a hammer and chisel, although you could do worse things, Uh, but at least it might be worth considering printing out a copy of this psalm and actually sticking it on your bedroom wall, in the back of your bedroom door, laminate it, stick it in your shower. 
Because for Augustine, what he believed was every time he got out of bed and saw this psalm engraved on his wall, it reminded him of its powerful words. But let's read it. Or let's pray it. And tonight we'll remain seated. Here are the first two verses. Blessed are those. Or you may have in your translation, Oh, what joy for those. Or again, some of you might be using a translation that reads, Happy is the person whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed are those. Oh, what joy for those. Happy is the person whose iniquity the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And what you have here, and this is, this is quite a unique situation, but what you have here is what's known as a double beatitude. Blessed are said twice in quick succession. And amongst other things, what this emphasizes is that what follows these two beatitudes are incredibly important. And the writer, David, the prayer, is wanting us to get the sense of energy behind what he is saying. And he wants to hammer home the theme, it would seem, of genuine happiness. Genuine happiness. That's why some translations have happy is the person, or oh what joy for, or blessed are. Genuine happiness. Because what David declares right from the outset in the start of this landmark prayer is that divine forgiveness is the gateway to happiness. I say it again. Divine forgiveness is the gateway to happiness. For David, that to be forgiven, to be pardoned by Almighty God, by his creator, by the Holy One, to actually be forgiven by God is to be truly blessed. Nothing else compares with this. That's what it means to know real joy. That's what it means to experience genuine happiness. Now, whenever we use the word happy, we're not talking about a momentary passing feeling that's dependent upon externals or circumstances. That's, that's not what we're talking about. Happiness here, this word blessed, means a profound state of being, well-being, an internal reality that exceeds all expectations. And there are many people here tonight. And that is your experience. You're blessed. Oh, what joy is yours. Oh, how happy are you if you know divine forgiveness. And in this psalm, David goes on to explain this in more detail. But before we move on, I want us to just look at this verse again. And I want you to notice that in these two verses, there are actually four words, four major Old Testament words for sin. And in fact, Sally's prayer of confession, which I didn't realize he was going to use just before the announcements, picked up on these four words. 
I don't know if you picked up on them as Sally laid us in a prayer of confession. But the first word is this. And what we find here with these four words is that here was a man who recognized and realized and understood the significance and weight of the issue. Here was someone who was, who was not just casual about this, but here was someone who was actually expressing words to God because he understood the problem of sin. He understood that it was humanity's greatest problem, greatest issue that needed to be addressed, and that he was someone who needed to articulate to God the seriousness of what he had done. And so the first word, is transgressions. What does that mean? Well, it carries and it implies, and again, this words that Sally used, this word it carries the idea of rebellion. Rebellion of one party against another. And you see, that is where we find ourselves as a result of this inherited problem. Every single one of us is born with this problem in our lives. It's a problem of sin. And one of the dimensions of that is it means that we have rebelled against a holy God. That we are living in rebellion. Sin is rebellion. But the amazing picture that David paints here is this. That blessed are those whose transgressions, whose rebellion has been forgiven. In other words, the person who no longer lives in rebellion to God, who is a friend of God now who is no longer an enemy of God, they are the ones who are truly blessed, who are really happy. And the second word then is just this word sin itself. There in verse 1, and what does it mean? Sally picked it up in his prayer. This word here means missing the mark. This means falling short. That's what sin is. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But here again, we confront this amazing thought that blessed are those whose sins are covered. Not just forgiven, but covered. We can't hit the target by ourselves. We all know that. We can't reach the standard. But somehow, God has got that covered. It's a phrase we use sometimes. Look, I've got that covered. Well, God has said, listen, I have got that covered. How? Well, that's what so much of the big story is all about. Covered because of Jesus, who deals with our shortfall. Third word, and it's only in certain translations, and maybe your translation doesn't have it, but Sally did pick this up in the prayer. This word, iniquity, and it is the sense of moral distortion, where we're twisted and we're bent out of shape. We're not properly aligned. And we see that in ourselves and we see that in others around us. And that's what sin does to us. We do things that we should never do. We think things we should never think. We say things we should never say. But what David discovers via divine forgiveness is that the Lord no longer counts this moral distortion against him. In other words, somehow God straightens us out. Somehow God knocks us back into shape. And for those who have been straightened out, who those who have been knocked back into shape, you are the truly blessed ones. You know genuine happiness. And then this final word, deceit. 
which means lacking integrity. It's about dishonesty. And sin creates and feeds this tendency to lie and to be dishonest and to lack integrity. But through experiencing the forgiveness of God, this deception is brought into the light. That's what this is all about here. This is what David is rejoicing in. That God enables him to live a life of honesty and integrity. And again, because of that, he is blessed. And so David has recognized and identified the extent of his sin. In other words, David has understood the multi-layered nature of sin. Transgressions, rebellion. Sin, I've missed the mark. Iniquity, morally. Bent out of shape. And deceit, I lack integrity. But in light of that, the point that David is making here as he starts this prayer is, but I'm in a great place. I am so happy because all of these things have been sorted out. But the question is, how? And it's not just because of Jesus. How? How did he get there? How did he reach that place? What did David do? What is it that sparked God into forgiving David? And the answer is one word. It's here. And that word is confession. It was through confessing his sin. And it was as a result of confessing his sin that David experienced divine forgiveness and therefore he found authentic joy and so the alternative quotation really is sc plus df equals happiness let me tease this out a little bit as we go through the psalm we're just working our way through it but in verses three or four david shares how he felt before he confessed he says you know whenever i kept silent have a look at the verses whenever i kept silent In other words, whenever David said nothing, whenever he prayed nothing, whenever he didn't own up, whenever he tried to live and exist in denial, the effect on his entire being was tangible. The physical, the spiritual impact and toll was extreme. And the language that David uses here to describe how he felt is striking. He says, listen, do you see whenever I kept silent? Do you see whenever I didn't confess? Do you see whenever I didn't pray? Do you see whenever I didn't own up, my bones felt like they were just wasting away? My words became like groans 24-7, or if it's not 24-7, it's certainly 12-7, all day, all day. I just groaned. And I could almost feel God's hand of discipline upon me. This was tangible. Remember, whenever I kept silent, whenever I didn't confess, this was how it felt like. Maybe that's a reference to conviction. It just felt like God's hand was heavy upon me. And the final thing he says is, I feel so weak. My strength is sapped. And what you have here is David capturing for us and describing to us his traumatic experience of unconfessed sin. This traumatic experience of guilt that accompanied unconfessed sin. And the question I want to ask you this evening, the question I want to ask myself is this, have I ever had that kind of experience? In Psalm 38, 
which is another prayer of confession, we come across similar sentiments. Listen to this as David articulates it. I, and this is, this is him reflecting on the fact of unconfessing. I am bent over and racked with pain. All day long I walk around filled with grief. A raging fever burns within me. My health is broken. I am exhausted. I am completely crushed. My groans come from an anguished heart. You see, the value of praying the Psalms, the value of praying in particular a Psalm like 32 or 38 is that it confronts and reminds us of the seriousness of sin of the depth of its impact on our entire beings. In a world where sin is trivialized and underestimated, here we have a psalm and a prayer that helps us to retain perspective, that enables us to make sure we never become indifferent about sin. Because according to David here, whenever I don't confess it, it impacts the whole of my life. And if nothing else, praying with a psalm like this challenges us to consider the potential distress of unconfessed sin. When David was silent, he suffered. But in verse 5, you reach the pivotal moment in this prayer. Because David moves, and thank God David moves, from silence to verbalized prayer. He speaks. And it's vital. That we get to this place. Then says David. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. And what we've got to identify with here. Is just the sheer intention and energy of this prayer. David says I acknowledged. I owned up. And I refuse to hide it any longer. I'm not going to cover this up. And I said, I will. This is an act of the will. I will confess my transgressions, my rebellion to the Lord. And then I discover divine forgiveness. And to link this with our morning series at the moment, if we confess our sins, if we get to that place, if we verbalize it, if we share it, if we speak it, If we express it, God's faithful and he's just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. One writer puts it like this. Long before Freud, the psalmist understood the need for spoken release and admission, the liberation that comes with articulation. In other words, the psalmist says, I've got to speak this out. I've got to name it. I've got to identify the sins. I cannot remain silent. But when I do speak those sins out and confess them to God, I find freedom. And I want to suggest for us this evening, we must never underestimate the value of this holy habit. And I suppose the question that flows out of this and we must consider is and it was a question asked a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning as we went through First John but when was the last time I engaged in honest to God confession where I came before God and I acknowledged and I said God I'm not going to cover it up any longer 
and I'm going to actually say it and identify it. Not generalize it, but actually become specific about it. Because you see, the problem is with unconfessed sin. It builds up in your life. And it actually leaves a mess. And it pollutes your relationship with God. As Christians, I know that relationship is secure. But whenever we make choices, and we can make choices still, and we've been looking at this recently, we can make choices still to sin. But if we don't confess that, our relationship with God is disrupted. The friendship is strained. And as I was preparing for this during the week, I came across this thought that confession is as necessary as taking out the rubbish. And here's what one person has written, and I know it's an American kind of context. But the problem is that sin is like garbage. You don't want to let it build up. Confessing sin is like taking out the garbage. You want to do it regularly. Because taking out the garbage is an extremely healthy thing, thing to do. I, uh, I empty the bin in our kitchen probably every other day. But our main bins are emptied by the council once a week. And so one of the ideas I thought with this for me is the sea every single Friday, which is our bin day. I'm going to kind of use that as a bit of a trigger to pray with this psalm or another psalm of confession. Because that way, on an almost weekly basis, I make sure there's no unhealthy build-up of unconfessed rubbish in my life. And the number of people who I have kind of like come across who are really struggling in their relationship with God. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons is there is still unconfessed sin in their lives. Sin that has been left to build up and leaves a mess and is disrupting their relationship with God. David confesses his sin. He experiences God's forgiveness. He discovers true happiness. And in light of this, look at what he says in the start of verse 6 and it makes so much sense he says this therefore let all the faithful pray to you you see what he's saying is this if such joy if genuine happiness follows the prayer of confession then for goodness sake let's pray whatever you do pray and at this point in the prayer and i'm nearly done there's a there's a shift but I want to make just a final few comments, and I'm, I'm not really going to go through the rest of the verses the way I've done those first lot. But in the second half of verse 6 and all of verse 7, have a look at it with me. David acknowledges that God is not the only one who forgives, but he's also the one who preserves him. He's also the one who protects him. He's also the one who looks after him, the one who surrounds him, the one who delivers him, the one who actually sings songs of deliverance over him. In other words, what David's saying here is, listen, God is for us. God is for me. God is for you. And if we mess up, and we will and we do, but if we mess up, we need to say sorry. Yes, we need to confess our sin, but not because God is out to get us. Not because God is some kind of cosmic moral monitor waiting to come down on us like a ton of bricks if we don't confess our sin. That's not what this is about. What David is saying here is this. God is for you. He is your protector, your preserver. He looks after you. He surrounds He sings songs of deliverance over you. And the reason you confess is this. Because you can. 
And not only because you can, because you need to realize that unconfessed sin eats away at you. It affects your entire well-being. That's why you need to confess. And in the final verse, because confession really is what David is saying, is it's not only good for your soul, which we've all heard, but it's also good for your body. And as he finishes this psalm in the very final verse, and in light of this prayer, and in light of what he has discovered, David ends on a note of praise. And that's why this psalm falls into the category, not just as a prayer of confession, but also as a prayer or a psalm of thanksgiving. Here's how it finishes. Rejoice in the Lord. Be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. And so if you're here this evening and you know you've thought something this week, you've said something, you've done something this week that was wrong, that, that was rebellious, that did miss the mark, that was morally messed up, that did lack integrity, then I encourage you to go from here and pray with or pray from Psalm 32 because confession plus divine forgiveness equals happiness. And whenever you experience that, then says David, go and sing your heart out. Rejoice, be glad, sing. And that's what we're going to do as we close.